Welcome to Bygone Tales, Episode 6. We have two stories for you tonight. And without further ado, let's go ahead and move on into the stories. Our first story tonight is by Nathaniel Hawthorne, born in 1804, died in 1864. Uh, he's an American novelist, most well-known for his book The Scarlet Letter, which I'm sure many of you were forced to read at some point in high school. Uh, most readers with a passing familiarity will think of Hawthorne as an overly moralistic writer, but readers who delve into his work will be rewarded with a dark psychological complexity. All right, and let's move on to his story. Young Goodman Brown by Nathaniel Hawthorne Young Goodman Brown came forth at sunset into the street at Salem Village, but put his head back, after crossing the threshold, to exchange a parting kiss with his young wife. And Faith, as the wife was aptly named, thrust her own pretty head into the street letting the wind play with the pink ribbons of her cap while she called to Goodman Brown. "'Dearest heart,' whispered she, softly, and rather sadly, when her lips were close to his ear, "'prithee, put off your journey until sunrise, and sleep in your own bed tonight. A lone woman is troubled with such dreams and such thoughts that she's afeard of herself sometimes.' Pray, tarry with me this night, dear husband, of all nights in the year. My love and my faith, replied young Goodman Brown, of all nights in the year, this one night must I tarry away from thee. My journey, as thou callest it, forth and back again, must needs be done twixt now and sunrise. What, my sweet pretty wife, dost thou doubt me already? And we but three months married? Then God bless you, said Faith, with the pink ribbons, and may you find all well when you come back. Amen, cried Goodman Brown, and say thy prayers, dear Faith, and go to bed at dusk, and no harm will come to thee. So they parted, and the young man pursued his way, until being about to turn the corner by the meeting-house, he looked back and saw the head of Faith, still peeping after him with a melancholy air in spite of her pink ribbons. Poor little Faith, thought he, for his heart smote him. What a wretch am I to leave her on such an errand. She talks of dreams, too. Methought as she spoke there was trouble in her face, as if a dream had warned her what work is to be done tonight. But no. No, t'would kill her to think it. Well, she's a blessed angel on earth, and after this one night, I'll cling to her skirts and follow her to heaven. With this excellent resolve for the future, Goodman Brown felt himself justified in making more haste on his present evil purpose. He had taken a dreary road, darkened by all the gloomiest trees of the forest, which barely stood aside to let the narrow path creep through, and closed immediately behind. It was all as lonely as could be, and there is this peculiarity in such a solitude, that the traveler knows not who may be concealed by the innumerable trunks and the thick boughs overhead, so that with lonely footsteps he may yet be passing through an unseen multitude. There may be a devilish Indian behind every tree, said Goodman Brown to himself, and he glanced fearfully behind him as he added, What if the devil himself should be at my very elbow? His head being turned back, 
he passed a crook of the road, and looking forward again, beheld the figure of man, in grave and decent attire, seated at the foot of an old tree. He arose at Goodman Brown's approach, and walked onward side by side with him. "'You are late, Goodman Brown,' said he. "'The clock of the Old South was striking as I came through Boston, and that is full fifteen minutes agone.' Faith kept me back a while, replied the young man, with a tremor in his voice, caused by the sudden appearance of his companion, though not wholly unexpected. It was now deep dusk in the forest, and deepest in that part of it where these two were journeying. As nearly as could be discerned, the second traveler was about fifty years old, apparently in the same rank of life as Goodman Brown, and bearing a considerable resemblance to him though perhaps more in expression than features. Still, they might have been taken for father and son, and yet, though the elder person was as simply clad as the younger, and as simple in manner too, he had an indescribable air of one who knew the world, and who would not have felt abashed at the governor's dinner table, or in King William's court, were it possible that his affairs should call him thither. But the only thing about him that could be fixed upon as remarkable was his staff, which bore the likeness of a great black snake, so curiously wrought that it might almost be seen to twist and wriggle itself like a living serpent. This, of course, must have been an ocular deception, assisted by the uncertain light. Come, Goodman Brown, cried his fellow traveler. This is a dull pace for the beginning of a journey. Take my staff, if you are so soon weary. Friend, said the other, exchanging his slow pace for a full stop, having kept covenant by meeting thee here, it is my purpose now to return whence I came. I have scruples touching the matter thou wotst of. Sayest thou so? replied he of the serpent, smiling apart. Let us walk on, nevertheless, reasoning as we go. And if I convince thee not, thou shalt turn back. We are but a little way in the forest yet. Too far, too far, exclaimed the goodman, unconsciously resuming his walk. My father never went into the woods on such an errand, nor his father before him. We have been a race of honest men and good Christians since the days of the martyrs, and shall I be the first of the name of Brown that ever took this path and kept... Such company, thou wouldst say, observed the elder person, interpreting his pause. Well said, Goodman Brown. I have been as well acquainted with your family as with ever a one among the Puritans, and that's no trifle to say. I helped your grandfather, the constable, when he lashed the Quaker woman so smartly through the streets of Salem. And it was I that brought your father a pitch-pine knot, kindled at my own hearth, to set fire to an Indian village in King Philip's war. They were my good friends, both, and many pleasant walk have we had along this path, and returned merrily after midnight. I would fain be friends with you for their sake. If it be as thou sayest, replied Goodman Brown, I marvel they never spoke of these matters, or verily I marvel not, seeing that the least rumor of the sort would have driven them from New England. We are a people of prayer and good works to boot, and abide no such wickedness. Wickedness or not, said the traveler with the twisted staff, I have a very general acquaintance here in New England. 
The deacons of many a church have drunk the communion wine with me. The selectmen of diverse towns make me their chairman, and a majority of the great and general court are firm supporters of my interest. The governor and I, too, but these are state secrets. Can this be so? cried Goodman Brown, with a state of amazement at his undisturbed companion. Howbeit, I have nothing to do with the governor and council. They have their own ways, and are no rule for a simple husbandman like me. But were I to go on with thee, how should I meet the eye of that good old man, our minister at Salem Village? Oh, his voice would make me tremble both Sabbath day and lecture day. Thus far, the elder traveler had listened with due gravity, but now burst into a fit of irrepressible mirth, shaking himself so violently that his snake-like staff actually seemed to wriggle in sympathy. Ha ha ha! shouted he again and again, then composing himself, Well, go on, Goodman Brown, go on, but prithee, don't kill me with laughing. Well then, to end the matter at once, said Goodman Brown, considerably nettled. There is my wife, Faith. It would break her dear little heart, and I'd rather break my own. Nay, if that be the case, answered the other, e'en go thy ways, Goodman Brown. I would not for twenty old women like the one hobbling before us that Faith should come to any harm. As he spoke, he pointed his staff at a female figure on the path, in whom Goodman Brown recognized a very pious and exemplary dame, who had taught him his catechism in youth, and was still his moral and spiritual adviser jointly with the minister and deacon Gookin. A marvel, truly, that Goody Cloyce should be out so far in the wilderness at nightfall, said he. But with your leave, friend, I shall take a cut through the woods until we have left this Christian woman behind. Being a stranger to you, she might ask whom I was consorting with and whither I was going. Be it so, said his fellow traveler. Betake you to the woods, and let me keep the path. Accordingly, the young man turned aside and took care to watch his companion, who advanced softly along the road until he had come within a staff's length of the old dame. She, meanwhile, was making the best of her way with singular speed for so aged a woman, and mumbling some indistinct words, a prayer, doubtless, as she went. The traveler put forth his staff and touched her withered neck with what seemed the serpent's tail. "'The devil!' screamed the pious old lady. "'Then Goody Cloyce knows her old friend,' observed the traveler, confronting her and leaning on his writhing stick. "'Ah, forsooth!' And is it your worship indeed, cried the good dame, yea, truly it is, and in the very image of my old gossip Goodman Brown, the grandfather of that silly fellow that now is. But, would your worship believe it, my broomstick hath strangely disappeared, stolen, as I suspect, by that unhanged witch Goody Corey, and that too when I was all anointed with the juice of smallage and sinkafoil and wolfsbane. "'Mingled with fine wheat and the fat of a newborn babe,' said the shape of old Goodman Brown. "'Ah, your worship knows the recipe,' cried the old lady, cackling aloud. "'So, as I was saying, being all ready for the meeting and no horse to ride on, "'I made up my mind to foot it, for they tell me there is a nice young man to be taken into communion tonight. "'But now your good worship will lend me your arm, and we shall be there in a twinkling.' That can hardly be, answered her friend. 
I may not spare you my arm, Goody Cloyce, but here is my staff, if you will. So saying, he threw it down at her feet, where, perhaps, it assumed life, being one of the rods which its owner had formerly lent to the Egyptian magi. Of this fact, however, Goodman Brown could not take cognizance. He had cast up his eyes in astonishment, and looking down again, beheld neither Goody Cloyce nor the serpentine staff, but his fellow traveler alone, who waited for him as calmly as if nothing had happened. That old woman taught me my catechism, said the young man, and there was a world of meaning in this simple comment. They continued to walk onward while the elder traveler exhorted his companion to make good speed and persevere in the path, discoursing so aptly that his arguments seemed rather to spring up in the bosom of his auditor than to be suggested by himself. As they went, he plucked a branch of maple to save for a walking stick, and began to strip it of the twigs and little boughs which were wet with evening dew. The moment his fingers touched them, they became strangely withered and dried up as with a week's sunshine. Thus the pair proceeded at a good free pace, until suddenly, in a gloomy hollow of the road, Goodman Brown sat himself down on the stump of a tree and refused to go any farther. Friend, said he stubbornly, my mind is made up. Not another step will I budge on this errand. What if a wretched old woman do I choose to go to the devil when I thought she was going to heaven? Is that any reason I should quit my dear faith and go after her? You will think better of this by and by, said his acquaintance composedly. Sit here and rest yourself a while, and when you feel like moving again, here is my staff to help you along. Without more words, he threw his companion the maple stick, and was as speedily out of sight as if he had vanished into the deepening gloom. The young man sat a few moments by the roadside, applauding himself greatly, and thinking how clear a conscience he should meet the minister in his morning walk, nor shrink from the eye of good old Deacon Gookin. And what calm sleep would be his that very night, which was to have been spent so wickedly, but so purely and sweetly now in the arms of faith. Amidst these pleasant and praiseworthy meditations, Goodman Brown heard the tromp of horses along the road, and deemed it advisable to conceal himself within the verge of the forest, conscious of the guilty purpose that had brought him thither, though now so happily turned from it. On came the hoof-tramps, and the voice of the riders, two grave old voices, conversing soberly as they drew near. These mingled sounds appeared to pass along the road within a few yards of the young man's hiding place. But, owing doubtless to the depth of the gloom at that particular spot, neither of the travelers nor their steeds were visible. Though their figures brushed the small boughs by the wayside, it could not be seen that they intercepted, even for a moment, the faint gleam from the strip of bright sky athwart which they must have passed. Goodman Brown alternately crouched and stood on tiptoe, pulling aside the branches and thrusting forth his head as far as he durst without discerning so much as a shadow. It vexed him the more because he could have sworn, were such a thing possible, that he recognized the voice of the minister and Deacon Gookin, jogging along quietly as they were wont to do when bound to some ordination or ecclesiastical council. 
While yet within hearing, one of the riders stopped to pluck a switch. Of the two, reverend sir, said the voice like the deacons, I had rather miss an ordination dinner than tonight's meeting. They tell me that some of our community are to be here from Falmouth and beyond, and others from Connecticut and Rhode Island. Besides, several of the Indian powwows, who, after their fashion, know almost as much deviltry as the best of us. Moreover, there is a goodly young woman to be taken into communion. Mighty well, Deacon Gookin, replied the solemn old tones of the minister. Spur up, or we shall be late. Nothing can be done, you know, until I get on the ground. The hoofs clattered again, and the voices talking so strangely in the empty air passed on through the forest where no church had ever been gathered or solitary Christian prayed. Whither, then, could these holy men be journeying so deep into the heathen wilderness? Young Goodman Brown caught hold of a tree for support, being ready to sink down on the ground, faint and overburdened with the heavy sickness of his heart. He looked up to the sky, doubting whether there really was a heaven above him. Yet there was the blue arch and the stars brightening in it. With heaven above and faith below, I will yet stand firm against the devil, cried Goodman Brown. While he still gazed upward into the deep arch of the firmament, and had lifted his hands to pray, a cloud, though no wind was stirring, hurried across the zenith and hid the brightening stars. The blue sky was still visible, except directly overhead, where this black mass of cloud was sweeping swiftly northward. Aloft in the air, as if from the depths of the cloud, came a confused and doubtful sound of voices. Once the listener fancied that he could distinguish the accents of townspeople of his own, men and women both pious and ungodly, many of whom he had met at the communion table and had seen others rioting at the tavern. The next moment, so indistinct were the sounds, he doubted whether he had heard aught but the murmur of the old forest, whispering without a word. Then came a stronger swell of those familiar tones, heard daily in the sunshine at Salem Village, but never until now from a cloud of night. There was one voice of a young woman, uttering lamentations, yet with an uncertain sorrow, and entreating for some favor, which, perhaps, it would grieve her to obtain. And all the unseen multitude, both saints and sinners, seemed to encourage her onward. Faith! shouted Goodman Brown, in a voice of agony and desperation, and the echoes of the forest mocked him, crying, Faith! Faith! as if bewildered wretches were seeking her all through the wilderness. The cry of grief, rage, and terror was yet piercing the night when the unhappy husband held his breath for a response. There was a scream, drowned immediately in a louder murmur of voices, fading into far-off laughter as the dark clouds slept away, leaving the clear and silent sky above Goodman Brown. But something fluttered lightly down through the air and caught in the branch of a tree. The young man seized it and beheld a pink ribbon. "'My faith is gone,' cried he after one stupefied moment. "'There is no good on earth, and sin is but a name. Come, devil, for to thee is this world given.' 
and maddened with despair so that he laughed loud and long, did Goodman Brown grasp his staff and set forth again at such a rate that he seemed to fly along the forest path rather than to walk or run. The road grew wilder and drearier and more faintly traced and vanished at length, leaving him in the heart of the dark wilderness, still rushing onward with the instinct that guides mortal men to evil. The whole forest was peopled with frightful sounds, the creaking of the trees, the howling of wild beasts, and the yell of Indians, while sometimes the wind tolled like a distant church bell, and sometimes gave a broad roar around the traveler, as if all nature were laughing him to scorn. But he was himself the chief horror of the scene, and shrank not from its other horrors. Ha, 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 roared Goodman Brown when the wind laughed at him. Let us hear which will laugh loudest. Think not to frighten me with your deviltry. Come, witch, come, wizard, come, Indian powwow. Come, devil himself, and here comes Goodman Brown. You may as well fear him as he fear you. In truth, all through the haunted forest, there could be nothing more frightful than the figure of Goodman Brown. On he flew among the black pines, brandishing his staff with frenzied gestures, now giving vent to an inspiration of horrid blasphemy, and now shouting forth such laughter as set all the echoes of the forest laughing like demons around him. The fiend in his own shape is less hideous than when he rages in the breast of man. Thus sped the demoniac on his course, until, quivering among the trees, he saw a red light before him, as when the felled trunks and branches of a clearing have been set on fire, and throw up their lurid blaze against the sky at the hour of midnight. He paused in a lull of the tempest that had driven him onward, and heard the swell of what seemed to him rolling solemnly from a distance with the weight of many voices. He knew the tune, it was a familiar one in the choir of the village meeting-house. The verse died heavily away, and was lengthened by a chorus, not of human voices, but of all the sounds of the benighted wilderness, pealing in awful harmony together. Goodman Brown cried out, and his cry was lost to his own ear by its unison with the cry of the desert. In the interval of silence he stole forward until the light glared full upon his eyes. At one extremity of an open space hemmed in by the dark wall of the forest arose a rock bearing some rude natural resemblance either to an altar or a pulpit, and surrounded by four blazing pines, their tops aflame, their stems untouched, like candles in an evening meeting. The mass of foliage that had overgrown the summit of the rock was all on fire, blazing high into the night and fitfully illuminating the whole field. Each pendant twig and leafy festoon was in a blaze. As the red light arose and fell, a numerous congregation alternately shone forth, then disappeared in shadow, and again grew, as it were, out of the darkness, peopling the heart of the solitary woods at once. A grave and dark-clad company, quoth Goodman Brown. In truth, they were such. Among them, quivering to and fro between gloom and splendor, appeared faces that would be seen next day at the council board of the province, and others which, Sabbath after Sabbath, looked devoutly heavenward and benightedly over the crowded pews from the holiest pulpits in the land. 
Some affirm that the lady of the governor was there. At least there were high dames, well known to her, and wives of honored husbands, and widows, a great multitude, and ancient maidens, all of excellent repute, and fair young girls who trembled lest their mothers should espy them. Either the sudden gleams of lights flashing over the obscure field bedazzled Goodman Brown, or he recognized a score of the church members of Salem Village, famous for their especial sanctity. Good old Deacon Gookin had arrived, and waited at the skirts of that venerable saint, his reverend pastor. But irreverently consorting with these grave, reputable, and pious people, those elders of the church, these chaste dames and dewy virgins, there were men of dissolute lives and women of spotted fame, wretches given over to all mean and filthy vice, and suspected even of horrid crimes. It was strange to see that the good shrank not from the wicked, nor were the sinners abashed by the saints. Scattered also among their pale-faced enemies were the Indian priests or powwows who had often scarred their native forest with more hideous incantations than any known to English witchcraft. But where is faith, thought Goodman Brown, and as hope came into his heart, he trembled. Another verse of the hymn arose, a slow and mournful strain, such as the pious love, but joined to words which expressed all that our nature can conceive of sin, and darkly hinted at far more. Unfathomable to mere mortals is the lore of fiends. Verse after verse was sung, and still the chorus of the desert swelled between the deepest tones of the mighty organ. And with the final peal of that dreadful anthem, there came a sound, as if the roaring wind, the rushing streams, the howling beasts, and every other voice of the unconcerted wilderness were mingling and according with the voice of guilty men in homage to the prince of all. The four blazing pines threw up a loftier flame and obscurely discovered shapes and visages of horror on the smoke wreaths above the impious assembly. At the same moment, the fire on the rock shot redly forth and formed a glowing arch above its base, where now appeared a figure. With reverence be it spoken, the figure bore no slight similitude, both in garb and manner, to some grave divine of the New England churches. Bring forth the converts, cried a voice that echoed through the field and rolled into the forest. At the word, Goodman Brown stepped forth from the shadow of the trees and approached the congregation, with whom he felt a loathful brotherhood by the symphony of all that was wicked in his heart. He could have well-nigh sworn that the shape of his own dead father beckoned him to advance, looking downward from a smoke-wreath, while a woman with dim features of despair threw out her hands to warn him back. Was it his mother? But he had no power to retreat one step, nor to resist, even in thought, when the minister and good old Deacon Gookin seized his arms and led him to the blazing rock. Thither came also the slender form of a veiled female, led between Goody Cloyce, that pious teacher of the catechism, and Martha Carrier, who had received the devil's promise to be queen of hell. A rampant hag was she, and there stood the proselytes beneath the canopy of fire. 
Welcome, my children, said the dark figure, to the communion of your race. Ye have found thus young your nature and your destiny. My children, look behind you. They turned, and flashing forth, as it were, in a sheet of flame, the fiend worshippers were seen. The smile of welcome gleamed darkly on every visage. There, resumed the sable form, are all whom ye have reverenced from youth. Ye deemed them holier than yourselves, and shrank from your own sin, constraining it with their lives of righteousness and prayerful aspirations heavenward. Yet here are they all in my worshipping assembly. This night it shall be granted you to know their secret deeds, how hoary bearded elders of the church have whispered wanton words to the young maids of their households, how many a woman, eager for widow's weeds, has given her husband a drink at bedtime and let him sleep his last sleep in her bosom. How beardless youths have made haste to inherit their father's wealth, and how fair damsels, blush not, sweet ones, have dug little graves in the garden, and bidden me the sole guest to an infant's funeral. By the sympathy of your human hearts for sin, ye shall scent out all the places, whether in church, bedchamber, street, field, or forest, where crime has been committed, and shall exult to behold the whole earth one stain of guilt, one mighty blood spot. Far more than this, it shall be yours to penetrate in every bosom the deep mystery of sin, the fountain of all wicked arts, and which inexhaustibly supplies more evil impulses than human power, than my power at its utmost can make manifest in deeds. And now, my children, look upon each other. They did so, and by the blaze of hell-kindled torches, the wretched man beheld his faith, and the wife, her husband, trembling before that unhallowed altar. Lo, there stand my children, said the figure, in a deep and solemn tone, almost sad with its despairing awfulness, as if his once angelic nature could yet mourn for our miserable race. Depending upon one another's hearts, ye had still hoped that virtue were not all a dream. Now are ye undeceived. Evil is the nature of mankind. Evil must be your only happiness. Welcome again, my children, to the communion of your race. Welcome, repeated the fiend worshippers in one cry of despair and triumph. And there they stood, the only pair, as it seemed, who were yet hesitating on the verge of wickedness in this dark world. A basin was hollowed, naturally, in the rock. Did it contain water reddened by the lurid light, or was it blood? Or, perchance, a liquid flame? Herein did the shape of evil dip his hand and prepare to lay the mark of baptism upon their foreheads, that they might be partakers of the mystery of sin, more conscious of the secret guilt of others, both in deed and thought, than they could now be of their own. The husband cast one look at his pale wife, and faith at him. What polluted wretches would the next glance show them to each other, shuddering alike in what they disclosed and what they saw? Faith! Faith! cried the husband. Look up to heaven and resist the wicked one. 
Whether faith obeyed, he knew not. Hardly had he spoken when he found himself amid calm night and solitude, listening to a roar of the wind which died heavily away through the forest. He staggered against the rock and felt it chill and damp, while a hanging twig that had been all on fire besprinkled his cheek with the coolest dew. The next morning, young Goodman Brown came slowly into the street of Salem Village, staring around him like a bewildered man. The good old minister was taking a walk along the graveyard to get an appetite for breakfast and meditate his sermon, and bestowed a blessing as he passed on Goodman Brown. He shrank from the venerable saint as if to avoid an anathema. Old Deacon Gookin was at domestic worship, and the holy words of his prayer were heard through the open window. What God doth the wizard pray to, quoth Goodman Brown. Goody Cloyce, that excellent old Christian, stood in the early sunshine at her own lattice, catechizing a little girl who had brought her a pint of morning's milk. Goodman Brown snatched away the child as from the grasp of a fiend himself. Turning the corner by the meeting house, he spied the head of faith with the pink ribbons, gazing anxiously forth and bursting into such joy at sight of him that she skipped along the street and almost kissed her husband before the whole village. But Goodman Brown looked sternly and sadly into her face and passed on without a greeting. Had Goodman Brown fallen asleep in the forest and only dreamed a wild dream of a witch-meeting? Be it so if you will, but alas, it was a dream of evil omen for young Goodman Brown. A stern, a sad, a darkly meditative, a distrustful, if not a desperate man did he become from the night of that fearful dream. On the Sabbath day, when the congregation were singing a holy psalm, he could not listen because an anthem of sin rushed loudly upon his ear and drowned all the blessed strain. When the minister spoke from the pulpit with power and fervid eloquence, and with his hand on the open Bible of the sacred truths of our religion, and of saint-like lives and triumphant deaths, and of future bliss or misery unutterable, then did Goodman Brown turn pale, dreading lest the roof should thunder down upon the gray blasphemer and his hearers. Often, waking suddenly at midnight, he shrank from the bosom of faith, and at morning or eventide, when the family knelt down at prayer, he scowled and muttered to himself, and gazed sternly at his wife and turned away. And when he had lived long and was born to his grave a hoary corpse, followed by faith an aged woman, and children and grandchildren, a goodly procession, besides neighbors, not a few, they carved no hopeful verse upon his tombstone, for his dying hour was gloom. That story was published in 1835. Now, Hawthorne did not think that his, uh, his short stories had any significant impact on the public. Contemporary critic Edgar Allan Poe strongly disagreed, referring to his short stories as the product of a truly imaginative intellect. Herman Melville said that uh, young Goodman Brown was as deep as Dante, 
Henry James called it a magnificent little romance, and Stephen King calls it his favorite story by Hawthorne and cites it as an inspiration for his story, The Man in the Black Suit. Well, let's move on to our next story of the evening. The story was written by Edith Nesbitt. She was born in 1858 and died in 1924. Uh, she's most well-known for her children's books. Uh, she wrote or collaborated on more than 60 books of children's literature. Uh, she was also a political activist and founder of the Fabian Society, which was a, uh, a, a socialist movement that later gained some, uh, some connection to the labor movement. She's been called the first modern writer for children and has been a direct or indirect uh, influence on writers such as P.L. Travers of Mary Poppins fame, uh, Edward Edgar, Diana Wynne-Jones, J.K. Rowlings. Uh, C.S. Lewis even mentions uh, some of the characters that she wrote in his Narnia books, and Michael Moorcock uh, wrote some, uh, some stories based on the now-adult versions of, of, some, of her, uh, some of her child characters. Well, let's move on to her story. The Ebony Frame by Edith Nesbitt To be rich is a luxurious sensation, the more so when you have plumbed the depths of hard-uppedness as a fleet street hack, a picker-upper of unconsidered pears, a reporter, an unappreciated journalist, all callings utterly inconsistent with one's family feeling and one's direct descent from the Dukes of Picardy. When my aunt Dorcas died and left me seven hundred a year and a furnished house in Chelsea, I felt that life had nothing left to offer except immediate possession of the legacy. Even Mildred Mayhew, whom I had hitherto regarded as my life's light, became less luminous. I was not engaged to Mildred, but I lodged with her mother, and I sang duets with Mildred, and gave her gloves when it would not run too, which was seldom. She was a dear, good girl, and I meant to marry her some day. It was very nice to feel that a good little woman is thinking of you. It helps you in your work, and it is pleasant to know she will say yes when you say, Will you? But, as I say, my legacy almost put Mildred out of my head, especially as she was staying with friends in the country just then. Before the first gloss was off my new morning, I was seated in my aunt's own armchair in front of the fire in the dining room of my own house. My own house. It was grand, but rather lonely. I did think of Mildred just then. The room was comfortably furnished with oak and leather. On the walls hung a few fairly good oil paintings, but the space above the mantelpiece was disfigured by an exceedingly bad print. The Trial of Lord William Russell, framed in a dark frame. I got up to look at it. I had visited my aunt with dutiful regularity, but I never remembered seeing this frame before. It was not intended for a print, but for an oil painting. It was of fine ebony, beautifully and curiously carved. I looked at it with growing interest, and when my aunt's housemaid, I had retained her modest staff of servants, came in with the lamp, I asked her how long the print had been there. Mistress only bought it two days afore she was took ill, she said, 
But the frame? She didn't want to buy a new one, so she got this out of the attic. There's lots of curious old things there, sir. Had my aunt had this frame long? Oh, yes, sir. It come long afore I did, and I've been here seven years come Christmas. There was a picture in it. That's upstairs, too. But it's that black and ugly, it might as well be chimney back. I felt a desire to see this picture. What if it were some priceless old master in which my aunt's eye had only seen rubbish? Directly after breakfast next morning, I paid a visit to the lumber room. It was crammed with old furniture enough to stock a curiosity shop. All the house was furnished solidly in the early Victorian style, and in this room everything not in keeping with the drawing-room sweet ideal was stowed away. Tables of papier-mâché and mother-of-pearl, straight-backed chairs with twisted feet and faded needlework cushions, fire screens of old-world design, oak bureau with brass handles, a little work table with its faded, moth-eaten silk flutings hanging in disconsolate shreds. On these and the dust that covered them blazed the full daylight as I drew up the blinds. I promised myself a good time in re-enshrining these household gods in my parlor and promoting the Victorian suite to the attic. But at present, my business was to find the picture as black as the chimney back, and presently, behind a heap of hideous still-life studies, I found it. Jane, the housemaid, identified it at once. I took it downstairs carefully and examined it. No subject... No color were distinguishable. There was a splodge of a darker tint in the middle, but whether it was figure or tree or house, no man could have told. It seemed to be painted on a very thick panel bound with leather. I decided to send it to one of those persons who pour on rotting family portraits the water of eternal youth. Mere soap and water, Mr. Bassant tells us. But even as I did so, the thought occurred to me to try my own restorative hand at the corner of it. My bath sponge, soap, and nail brush, vigorously applied for a few seconds, showed me that there was no picture to clean. Bare oak presented itself to my preserving brush. I tried the other side, Jane watching me with indulgent interest. The same result. Then the truth dawned on me. Why was the panel so thick? I tore off the leather binding, and the panel divided and fell to the ground in a cloud of dust. There were two pictures. They had been nailed face to face. I leaned them against the wall, and the next moment I was leaning against it myself. For one of the pictures was myself. A perfect portrait. No shade of expression or turn of feature wanting. Myself in a cavalier dress, love locks and all. When had this been done, and how, without my knowledge? Was this some whim of my aunt's? Lord, sir, the shrill surprise of Jane at my elbow, what a lovely photo it is. Was it a fancy ball, sir? Yes, I stammered. I, I don't think I want anything more now. You can go. She went, and I turned, still with my heart beating violently, to the other picture. This was a woman of the type of beauty, beloved of Burne Jones and Rossetti. Straight nose, low brows, full lips, thin hands, large, deep, luminous eyes. She wore a black velvet gown 
It was a full-length portrait. Her arms rested on a table beside her, and her head was on her hands, but her face was turned full forward, and her eyes met those of the spectator bewilderingly. On the table by her were compasses and instruments whose uses I did not know, books, a goblet, and a miscellaneous heap of papers and pens. I saw all this afterwards. I believe it was a quarter of an hour before I could turn my eyes away from hers. I have never seen any other eyes like hers. They appealed as a child's or a dog's do. They commanded as might those of an empress. Shall I sweep up the dust, sir? Curiosity had brought Jane back. I acceded. I turned from her my portrait. I kept between her and the woman in the black velvet. When I was alone again, I tore down the trial of Lord William Russell, and I put the picture of the woman in its strong ebony frame. Then I wrote to a frame maker for a frame for my portrait. It had so long lived face to face with this beautiful witch that I had not the heart to banish it from her presence, from which it will be perceived that I am by nature a somewhat sentimental person. The new frame came home, and I hung it opposite the fireplace. An exhaustive search among my aunt's papers showed no explanation of the portrait of myself, no history of the portrait of the woman with the wonderful eyes. I only learned that all the old furniture together had come to my aunt at the death of my great-uncle, the head of the family, and I should have concluded that the resemblance was only a family one if everyone who came in had not exclaimed at the speaking likeness. I adopted Jane's fancy ball explanation. And there, one might suppose, the matter of the portraits ended. One might suppose it, that is, if there were not evidently a good deal more written here about it. However, to me, then, the matter seemed ended. I went to see Mildred. I invited her and her mother to come and stay with me. I rather avoided glancing at the picture in the ebony frame. I could not forget, nor remember, without singular emotion, the look in the eyes of that woman when mine first met them. I shrank from meeting that look again. I reorganized the house somewhat, preparing for Mildred's visit. I turned the dining room into a drawing room. I brought down much of the old-fashioned furniture, and, after a long day of arranging and rearranging, I sat down before the fire, and lying back in a pleasant languor, I idly raised my eyes to the picture. I met her dark, deep, hazel eyes, and once more my gaze was held, fixed as by strong magic, the kind of fascination that keeps one sometimes staring for whole minutes into one's own eyes in the glass. I gazed into her eyes and felt my own dilate, pricked with a smart like the smart of tears. I wish, I said, oh, how I wish you were a woman and not a picture. Come down, come down. I laughed at myself as I spoke, but even as I laughed, I held out my arms. I was not sleepy. I was not drunk. I was as wide awake and as sober as ever was a man in this world. And yet, as I held out my arms, I saw the eyes of the picture dilate. Her lips tremble. If I were to be hanged for saying it, it is true. Her hands moved slightly, and a sort of flicker of a smile passed over her face. I sprang to my feet. This won't do, I said, still aloud. Firelight does play strange tricks. I'll have the lamp. 
I pulled myself together and made for the bell. My hand was on it when I heard a sound behind me and turned, the bell still unrung. The fire had burned low, and the corners of the room were deeply shadowed. But surely, there, behind the tall, worked chair, was something darker than a shadow. I must face this out, I said, or I shall never be able to face myself again. I left the bell, I seized the poker, and battered the dull coals to a blaze. Then I stepped back, resolutely, and looked up at the picture. The ebony frame was empty. From the shadow of the worked chair came a silken rustle, and out of the shadow, the woman of the picture was coming, coming towards me. I hope I shall never again know a moment of terror so blank and absolute. I could not have moved or spoken to save my life. Either all the known laws of nature were nothing, or I was mad. I stood trembling, but I am thankful to remember I stood still while the black, velvet gown swept across the hearthrug toward me. Next moment, a hand touched me, a hand soft, warm, and human, and a low voice said, You called me, I am here. At that touch and that voice, the world seemed to give a sort of bewildering half-turn. I hardly know how to express it, but at once it seemed not awful, not even unusual for portraits to become flesh, only most natural, most right, most unspeakably fortunate. I laid my hand on hers. I looked from her to my portrait. I could not see it in the firelight. We are not strangers, I said. Oh no, not strangers. Those luminous eyes were looking up into mine. Those red lips were near me. With a passionate cry, a sense of having suddenly recovered life's one great good that had seemed wholly lost, I clasped her in my arms. She was no ghost. She was a woman, the only woman in the world. How long, I said, oh love, how long since I lost you. She leaned back, hanging her full weight on the hands that were clasped behind my head. How can I tell how long? There is no time in hell, she answered. It was not a dream. Ah, no, there are no such dreams. I wish to God there could be. When in dreams do I see her eyes, hear her voice, feel her lips against my cheek, hold her hands to my lips as I did that night, the supreme night of my life. At first we hardly spoke, it seemed enough. After long grief and pain, to feel the arms of my true love round me once again. It is very difficult to tell this story. There are no words to express the sense of glad reunion, the complete realization of every hope and dream of a life that came upon me as I sat with my hand in hers and looked into her eyes. How could it have been a dream when I left her sitting in the straight-backed chair and went down to the kitchen to tell the maids I should want nothing more, that I was busy and did not wish to be disturbed, when I fetched wood for the fire with my own hands and bringing it in found her still sitting there, saw the little brown head turn as I entered, saw the love in her dear eyes when I threw myself at her feet and blessed the day I was born since life had given me this. 
not a thought of Mildred. All the other things in my life were a dream. This, it's one splendid reality. I am wondering, she said after a while, when we had made such cheer each of the other as true lovers may after long parting, I am wondering how much you remember of our past. I remember nothing, I said. Oh, my dear lady, my dear sweetheart, I remember nothing but that I love you, that I have loved you all my life. You remember nothing? Really nothing? Only that I am yours, that we have both suffered, that, tell me, my mistress dear, all that you remember. Explain it all to me. Make me understand. And yet, no, I don't want to understand. It is enough that we are together. If it was a dream, why have I never dreamed it again? She leaned down towards me. Her arms lay on my neck and drew my head till it rested on her shoulder. I am a ghost, I suppose, she said, laughing softly, and her laughter stirred memories which I just grasped at and just missed. But you and I know better, don't we? I will tell you everything you have forgotten. We loved each other. Ah, no, you have not forgotten that. And when you came back from the war, we were to be married. Our pictures were painted before you went away. You know I was more learned than women of that day. Dear one, when you were gone, they said I was a witch. They tried me. They said I should be burned, just because I had looked at the stars and gained more knowledge than they. They must needs bind me to a stake and let me be eaten by the fire, and you far away. Her whole body trembled and shrank. Oh, love, what dream would have told me that my kisses would soothe even that memory? The night before, she went on, the devil did come to me. I was innocent before. You know it, don't you? And even then, my sin was for you, for you, because of the exceeding love I bore you. The devil came, and I sold my soul to eternal flame. But I got a good price. I got the right to come back through my picture, if anyone looking at it wished for me, as long as my picture stayed in its ebony frame. That frame was not carved by man's hand. I got the right to come back to you. Oh, my heart's heart, and another thing I won, which you shall hear anon. They burned me for a witch. They made me suffer hell on earth. Those faces all crowding round the crackling wood and the smell of the smoke. Oh, love, no more, no more. When my mother sat that night before my picture, she wept and cried. Come back, my poor lost child. And I went to her with glad leaps of heart. Dear, she shrank from me. She fled. She shrieked and moaned of ghosts. She had our pictures covered from sight and put again in the ebony frame. She had promised me my picture should stay there always. <sighs> Through all these years, your face was against mine. She paused. But the man you loved? You came home. My picture was gone. They lied to you, and you married another woman. But some day I knew you would walk the world again and that I should find you.
The other gain? I asked. The other gain, she said slowly, I gave my soul for. It is this. If you also will give up your hopes of heaven, I can remain a woman. I can move in your world. I can be your wife. Oh, my dear, after all these years, at last, at last. If I sacrifice my soul, I said slowly, with no thought of the imbecility of such talk in our so-called 19th century. If I sacrifice my soul, I win you. Why, love, it's a contradiction in terms. You are my soul. Her eyes looked straight into mine. Whatever might happen, whatever did happen, whatever may happen, our two souls in that moment met and became one. Then you choose, you deliberately choose, to give up your hopes of heaven for me as I gave up mine for you. I decline, I said, to give up my hope of heaven on any terms. Tell me what I must do that you and I may make our heaven here as now, my dear love. I will tell you tomorrow, she said. Be alone here tomorrow night. Twelve is ghost's time, isn't it? And then I will come out of the picture and never go back to it. I shall live with you and die and be buried and there will be an end of me. But we shall live first, my heart's heart. I laid my head on her knee. A strange drowsiness overcame me. Holding her hand against my cheek, I lost consciousness. When I awoke, the gray November dawn was glimmering ghost-like through the uncurtained window. My head was pillowed on my arm, which rested. I raised my head quickly. Ah, not on my lady's knee, but on the needle-worked cushion of the straight-backed chair. I sprang to my feet. I was stiff with cold and dazed with dreams, but I turned my eyes on the picture. There she sat, my lady, my dear love. I held out my arms, but the passionate cry I would have uttered died on my lips. She had said twelve o'clock. Her lightest word was my law. So I only stood in front of the picture and gazed into those gray-green eyes till tears of passionate happiness filled my own. Oh, my dear, my dear, how shall I pass the hours till I hold you again? No thought, then, of my whole life's completion and consummation being a dream. I staggered up to my room, fell across my bed, and slept heavily and dreamlessly. When I awoke, it was high noon. Mildred and her mother were coming to lunch. I remembered at one shock Mildred's coming and her existence. Now, indeed, the dream began. With a penetrating sense of the futility of any action apart from her, I gave the necessary orders for the reception of my guests. When Mildred and her mother came, I received them with cordiality, but my genial phrases all seemed to be someone else's. My voice sounded like an echo. My heart was otherwhere. Still, the situation was not intolerable until the hour when afternoon tea was served in the drawing room. Mildred and her mother kept the conversational pot boiling with a profusion of genteel commonplaces, and I bore it as one can bear mild purgatories when one is in sight of heaven.
I looked up at my sweetheart in the ebony frame, and I felt that anything that might happen, any irresponsible imbecility, any bathos of boredom, was nothing if, after it all, she came to me again. And yet, when Mildred, too, looked at the portrait and said, What a fine lady! One of your flames, Mr. Devane? I had a sickening sense of important irritation, which became absolute torture when Mildred, how could I ever have admired that chocolate box barmaid style of prettiness, threw herself into the high-backed chair covering the needlework with her ridiculous flounces and added, Silence gives consent. Who is it, Mr. Devane? Tell me all about her. I am sure she has a story. Poor little Mildred, sitting there smiling, serene in her confidence that every word charmed me, sitting there with her rather pinched waist, her rather tight boots, her rather vulgar voice, sitting in the chair where my dear lady had sat when she told me her story. I could not bear it. Don't sit there, I said. It's not comfortable. But the girl would not be warned. With a laugh that set every nerve in my body vibrating with annoyance, she said, Oh dear, mustn't I even sit in the same chair as your black velvet woman? I looked at the chair in the picture. It was the same. And in her chair, Mildred was sitting. Then a horrible sense of the reality of Mildred came upon me. Was all this a reality after all? But for fortunate chance might Mildred have occupied not only her chair, but her place in my life? I rose. I hope you won't think me very rude, I said, but I am obliged to go out. I forget what appointment I alleged. The lie came readily enough. I faced Mildred's pouts with the hope that she and her mother would not wait dinner for me. I fled. In another minute, I was safe, alone, under the chill, cloudy autumn sky, free to think, think, think of my dear lady. I walked for hours along streets and squares. I lived over again and again every look, word, and hand touch, every kiss. I was completely unspeakably happy. Mildred was utterly forgotten. My lady of the ebony frame filled my heart and soul and spirit. As I heard eleven boom through the fog, I turned and went home. When I got to my street, I found a crowd surging through it, a strong red light filling the air. A house was on fire. Mine. I elbowed my way through the crowd, the picture of my lady, that at least I could save. As I sprang up the stairs, I saw as in a dream, yes, all was really dreamlike. I saw Mildred leaning out of the first floor window, wringing her hands. Come back, sir, cried a fireman. We'll get the young lady out right enough. But my lady, I went on up the stairs, crackling, smoking, and as hot as hell, to the room where her picture was. Strange to say, I only felt that the picture was a thing we should like to look on through the long, glad, wedded life that was to be ours. I never thought of it as being one with her. As I reached the first floor, I felt arms round my neck. The smoke was too thick for me to distinguish features. 
Save me, a voice whispered. I clasped a figure in my arms, and with a strange dis-ease, bore it down the shaking stairs and out into safety. It was Mildred. I knew that directly I clasped her. Stand back, cried the crowd. Everyone's safe, cried the fireman. The flames leapt from every window. The sky grew redder and redder. I sprang back from the hands that would have held me. I leapt up the steps. I crawled up the stairs. Suddenly, the whole horror of the situation came on me. As long as my picture remains in the ebony frame, what if picture and frame perished together? I fought with the fire and with my own choking inability to fight with it. I pushed on. I must save my picture. I reached the drawing room. As I sprang in, I saw my lady. I swear it, through the smoke and the flames, hold out her arms to me, to me, who came too late to save her and to save my own life's joy. I never saw her again. Before I could reach her or cry out to her, I felt the floor yield beneath my feet, and I fell into the fiery hell below. How did they save me? What does that matter? They saved me somehow, cursed them. Every stick of my aunt's furniture was destroyed. My friends pointed out that, as the furniture was heavily insured, the carelessness of a nightly studious housemaid had done me no harm. No harm! That is how I won and lost my only love. I deny with all my soul in the denial that it was a dream. There are no such dreams. Dreams of longing and pain there are in plenty. But dreams of complete, of unspeakable happiness? No. It is the rest of my life that is the dream. But if I think that... Why have I married Mildred, and grown stout and dull and prosperous? I tell you, it is all this that is the dream. My dear lady only is the reality. And what does it matter what one does in a dream? Well, that little short story was published in 1893 in her book of short stories, Grim Tales. Well, I hope you enjoyed the uh, selection of stories tonight. Uh, as usual, um, please feel free to contact us at bygonetales at gmail.com if you have any, uh, any comments or, uh, or any questions. Uh, if you are enjoying the show, please, by all means, uh, visit us at, uh, at iTunes and leave us a, uh, leave us a review. Uh, every review helps. Uh, Five-star reviews in particular will, uh, will get us a little more uh, notoriety, uh, maybe get us a few more listeners. And, and of course, the more listeners we have, the uh, more likely we are to keep doing this for a while. As I mentioned in the last episode, I am uh, looking for narrators, uh, particularly narrators who are interested in or good at reading poetry. Um, poetry is a particular weakness on my part, and um, I, I have a lot of poetry I would like to feature on this podcast. I just, I do not feel comfortable reading poetry. Um, feel free to come on by and uh, see us on Facebook. Uh, our Facebook page is Bygone Tales Podcast, 
Uh, right now we're in the process of uh, running a serialization of Lord Dunsany's The Gods of Pagana. As soon as we're done with that, we'll get back to putting up some uh, fables by Ambrose Bierce. Well, thank you again for uh, spending your evening with us, and until next time. And if you've enjoyed the stories read tonight, please, by all means, check out oldstyletales.com. All one word. You know, I, I think their website says it best. Quote, Old Style Tales Press is an independent literary press which publishes crafted anthologies of classic ghost stories, tales of horror, and the supernatural from the golden age of horror fiction, 1818 to 1937. Editions featuring original illustrations, annotations, and opening and closing commentary on each story. And I have to tell you, the production quality of these books is absolutely fantastic. And really, it's a very, very attractive price point in order to purchase these. You can buy them either as ebook or as physical books that you can hold in your hand. And if you're a fan of books like I am, I know you're going to go for the physical books that you can hold in your hand. However, you can get a collection of all the ebooks that they have for a very affordable price. Please go and check them out. It's a great product that they put out. In fact, I recommend it so highly that they're not even actually promoting this show. I just really, really like their product. So check them out. OldStyleTales.com.